Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before, came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Christine. You may be seated. Before we jump into the sermon, I want to say, Ed, that silence, after declaring you're going to sing, was devastating. And... uh, I'm pretty sure you could run back the tape and at least half the team has the look on their face that says, I just laughed in that wonderful man's face (laughs) as he's about to sing this prayer. That's how I felt, Um, so thank you for that. Let me pray for us. I need to get that off my chest. Lord, thank you for this family of faith. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the summertime. Uh, when, when many of our folks get away, I pray that this would be a time of rest and renewal, that we would not confuse time away with coming to our Lord and Savior who is our rest. And I pray that this time in the Word would be a time for those who do not know you to hear and believe, and for those who do know you, for it to be a time of pasture with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, Jesus, uh, as a figure in history, is a very divisive character. He divides. In fact, he says himself in Matthew 10, I did not come to bring peace, but the sword. So there's a sense in which Jesus, as a person, is uh, you can't take a neutral stance on him. Uh, And that's nothing new. In fact, uh, as we look at this passage in John 10, which will be here for this sermon and the next I Am sermon, Um, At the very end of this, Jesus finishes his statement, and here's what John 10, 19 through 21 says. Jesus has made these claims, and here's the response of the crowd. There was again a division amongst the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so what we can learn from Jesus, specifically the passage we're going to look at today, is that Jesus is not interested in the unity of all people by any means. That's not on his agenda of things to do. Jesus is interested in unity, certainly, but unity under the singular truth of who he is. And because the human heart wants what it wants, we all know that, because the human heart wants its own way, Jesus has been, always will be, a divisive character. 
So this particular I am statement, I am the door, the, the one that's also intertwined in this passage, I am the shepherd, they go hand in hand. But today's statement especially is a dividing statement. There's no way to be neutral on it. There's no way to understand it as something that is both true and false at the same time. Either it's completely true or utterly false. Either it is to be accepted fully or rejected outright. There's no halfway in that. And so in this section, Jesus is using allegory. Allegory. Now, allegory, you see this in verse 6. It says, this figure of speech Jesus used with them. Allegory is a very specific word. It means something very specific. It means that you use a story, a story with common factors, well-known factors, and each one of those little parts of the story have a higher meaning. Now, as a note on allegory, uh, we tend, as we read parables, to think parables are allegory. They're not. Parables have a, a, have a mission to give an overarching large truth. Uh, so we, it's not good interpretation to take every little tiny piece of a parable and try and find its equal. However, in this moment, Jesus is taking sheep and shepherds and sheepfolds, and he is allegorizing them. He's giving the little pieces bigger meaning. And so today, uh, we're going to be looking at what would have back then been familiar cultural images, not so for us, but we're going to try and unpack that. Specifically, we're looking at ancient sheepfolds today, all right? That's fun. Um, so imagine with me, if you will, a room that's outside. There you go. Um, that's a sheepfold. Um, uh, an ancient sheepfold made out of stone, high walls. On top of the walls, they would have put thorns. They meant business. Sheep were their way of living, and so they guarded them. Uh, inside the sheepfold, there were some covered areas for when it got sunny or cold or whatever, and then most of it was open. But the big thing here, what's important for us to understand, is in this outdoor room with, with thorns on the walls, there's only one entrance. One entrance. And in that entrance, either the hired hand or the shepherd stands there, and what is their job? Their job is to keep the sheep in, keep everything else out. There's one way in and out. And so Jesus, in this particular statement, is focusing in on this part of the sheepfold. And so he sets it up in verse 1. He says, truly, truly. Now, he's responding to a scenario that we'll get into in just a moment, but he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheep, enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, is a thief and a robber. The statement, the overarching meaning of what Jesus is getting at is there is one way into the sheepfold. And in the same way, allegorizing, there is one way into the presence of of God. Look at verses 6, 7, and 9. In verse 6, we see that he realizes he has to change it up a little bit to gain understanding, and so he, he does. And, and so he says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. What is Jesus saying about himself you can see, if you're tracking with me, where the division comes from. He's saying, listen, just like a sheepfold, there's one way in, one way out. In the same way, into the presence of God, there is one way in and one way out. And it is me, he says. Let's talk about, it for a moment, the presence of God. The presence of God. In the Old Testament, 
As we read in Galatians, the Old Testament times with Israel was a time of tutoring and training for God's people. And so in the Old Testament, you have the tabernacle or the temple, you have, um, uh, you have the land, the, the holy land, the, the, the land that God gave them, and God's physical presence was with them in the temple or the tabernacle. And, and so in the Old Testament, when God was in your presence, when you were in the land of God near the temple, there was peace, political peace, there was physical satisfaction, there was physical wealth, there was physical health, there was physical blessing, physical fruitfulness, physical protection. All those benefits were being tangibly given, physically given to the Israelites as a way of training. It says in Exodus 25, let them make me a sanctuary that what? I may dwell in their midst. The concept Carried over into Psalm 102, for the Lord builds up Zion, Zion being a physical city, being, and it says he appears in his glory. So when God is present, things physically go well in the Old Testament. This is where a lot of people get confused when they read these Old Testament passages. It seems as though God wants to physically bless us, but something changes with Jesus Christ. Jesus shows up in the New Testament. Instead of a temple, Jesus now is the physical manifestation of the presence of God. In fact, it goes to the point where he says, you, you will destroy this temple, but in three days I'll build it back up. And they're like, what is he talking about? How could you build Solomon's temple in three days? That's insane. But Jesus is speaking of himself. And so between the Old Testament and the New Testament, a transition takes place from physical representations of blessing to deeper spiritual realities. And so Jesus, what he's saying is, it's no longer about the land of Israel. It's no longer about the temple. I am the gate. I am the way into the presence, the blessing, the satisfaction, the deep spiritual needs that can only be met in the presence of God. I'm the way. I'm the gate. There is no other way. In verse 8, he continues the division. He says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. There's a couple different meanings here on this idea of who came before him. Um, There's one more broad meaning. Certainly anyone before Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah, that person was not. Jesus was the only one there ever was or will be. But... The context, especially from John 9, gives us another target for these dividing words. And so I'm very quickly going to go through uh, John 9 and the story that takes place there. But first, you can see in verse 10, you get the sense that, that Jesus is talking to someone who's a more close proximity than people in the past who have claimed to be Messiah. He says in verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so, John 9, imagine, if you will, kind of a flashback scene, right? The the squiggly lines, blurry, whatever. We're going back just just a moment before this particular conversation about doors and shepherds and sheep takes place. John 9, 1 through 7. I'm excited too. Um, John 9, 1 through 7 says this, as he passed by, so Jesus is walking with his disciples, he saw a man blind from birth. You get the idea. And his disciples asked him, here's the question, very rude, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
All right, so there are a lot to unpack there, but before we condemn the disciples, think about, what we just, think about what we just talked about in the Old Testament. Physical blessing, physical curse connected to the presence of God. So someone born blind, obviously something, someone had done something wrong. But here's Jesus' response. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Having said these things, it gets a little gross, Jesus spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. So Jesus makes spit mud. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the blind man went and washed. And here's the deal. He came back seeing. He came back seeing. A miracle has taken place. Blind from birth. He's a fully grown man, never seen anything. Jesus has restored his sight with a little bit of spit mud. Now, from this point, several fascinating events roll out of that. I love these stories because it's unexpected. A miracle has occurred, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they are torqued off. They are upset. Why? Because Jesus made mud on the Sabbath. Think about, you're missing the point of the story here, Pharisees. A man, born blind, now can see, you made mud? This is what's happening. They're so upset about this, they hold two interrogations with the man who can see. They bring in his parents. I love this. His parents are like, we don't want to be a part of this. They say, ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. In other words, leave us out of this, okay? It's a fascinating story. Now, they interrogate. It's not going great. They want to know who this man is. They want to know about Jesus. They want some incriminating evidence. And listen to the blind man, the now seeing man's response to the religious leaders of his day. He says this, I'm in John 9, verse 30. Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, speaking of Jesus, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. What a great speech. Now, that's courage that could only come from somebody doing something like he has has been done for this man, standing up to the ones who hold all the spiritual power in his day, saying, you obviously don't understand what's going on. It's kind of amazing that you don't just see the miracle. You're focused on the mud. Now, the next verse is, is, for me, heartbreaking. Listen to the response of the Pharisees to this man. You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? Wow. Now, that's a sermon in and of itself. There's so much there to unpack. You were born in utter sin, that's their assumption, and you would teach us. And then it says, and they cast him out. They threw him out of the synagogue. The Pharisees claiming, hopefully you're connecting this at this point, claiming to be the gatekeepers of the kingdom. Do you see? The Pharisees claiming to be the ones who decide who is in and who is out. They expelled this man from the synagogue, from his religion. And so Jesus, what is he doing calling himself the gate? What is he doing calling himself the shepherd? What is he doing calling them thieves and robbers? He's calling them out on their guilt for robbing people 
of their faith, destroying their belief through their set of man-made rules and harsh enforcement. To bring some levity and re- resolution, Jesus finds the man after this. It says in John 9, 35 and following, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man who now sees said, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you have seen him, and it is he that is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. What a beautiful story. What an ugly story that turned a beautiful story. And so think about this. In that context is what, when Jesus speaks these words, I am the door. I'm the door. I'm the way in. It brings texture to the story. And so is it a dividing statement that Jesus is the only way into the kingdom? In our world, yes, it is. People don't like to hear that. But, but what is Jesus doing in this passage? By claiming that he is the door, he is standing against those who would have you earn your way to God. He is standing against the proud who would look to a technical execution of rules to determine our worthiness. And Jesus is saying, that's not what is right. That's not how it is. He calls them thieves and robbers. Instead, what he's saying, in a statement made to anyone who can't save themselves, If you enter by me, you will be saved. And what's the prerequisite for Jesus Christ? What's the password? (laughs) The password is, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Access to the blessings, the satisfaction, the beauty, the riches, the health, the, the meeting of deep, deep spiritual needs. Access to the presence of God is to accept Christ at his word, I am the gate. And so what is Jesus saying? Yes, it, on face value, it's d- d- divisive. It's dividing. But what's the word of Jesus? When he says, I am the gate, he's speaking to the poor, the oppressed, the outcast, the sinner, the heavy laden. He's speaking to the burned out, the kicked out, and the down and out. And what he's saying is, I am the gate. You have my heart. You have my attention. And he loves us and he's calling us to safety. He's calling us to safety. So this morning, if you're listening and and you are not, you don't consider yourself a Christian, in a flippant way, we certainly can believe what we want. We can believe what we want. We're, we're, We're presented with the truth of Christ here in this passage. He's the only way into the saving and sustaining presence of God. But I want to say that there is no better news for anyone on the planet other than Jesus saying, I am the door. There's no better news. I'll say this, the world will have you as long as you believe what they believe and do what they want you to do. But as soon as you stop, you are rejected by the world. The same goes for for harsh religious systems. Do what we say, do what we want, believe what we believe, or else. And anyone who's rejected either by the world or by by legalistic religion, Jesus says to you, I am the gate. I'm the way in. There's no better news than that. 
to those of us here who follow Christ, these kinds of statements are not just meant for unbelievers. They're meant for us as well. This is an absolute statement that is true as the day we believe it, as the day we die in it. And these kinds of statements are an opportunity for us to call into question the way that we live our lives. Do we find pasture in Jesus Christ? Or do we say we believe that he's the gate and we actually live in a different way, acting as if there's dozens and dozens of other ways to get and receive only what Christ provides? Do we look to Christ as the gateway of true life, true protection, true delight, true rest, true fulfillment, church? Myself included, if by Christ we are in, let us live our lives as if we are in the saving and sustaining presence of God. I've missed having the Lord's Supper with you all. And so I'm thankful this morning we get to eat and drink together. And the question I have, if Jesus is the gate, then what is the Lord's Supper this morning? What does it represent for us? What is the truth of the Lord's Supper? And one way you can think about it, if Jesus is the gate, then the Lord's Supper, the broken bread, the wine, the juice... It is a representation of the price of admission. The price of admission. We have been approached by Christ. We are unworthy to enter, and yet what happens? We have nothing to give. We have The Pharisees thought that you could do certain things, believe certain things, be a certain way, and that would gain you access. And Jesus says, nobody has that amount of riches. And so what did Jesus do? He paid our access to God by himself. He paid it for us. And so church, I think it's very healthy this morning in our hearts to see ourselves much like that blind man. Where does Jesus meet us? He meets us in our deepest place of rejection. And he offers us himself. He offers us himself. And so this supper, what is it? It's a celebration of our acceptance by Christ, in Christ, because of Christ. It's a declaration of praise that Christ was willing to pay the cost of admission, that he paid it willingly and lovingly for us. And so this morning, if you believe that to be true, that you don't have a ticket on your own, you couldn't make it in if you tried. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the gate, the only way in, and that you believe that he is Lord, if you have done that, you confess that, you profess that publicly, you've been baptized, you're invited in. This is a moment of rest and pasture. Participate in it. To those who stand and are undecided even, or who say, you know, life inside the the sheepfold is not for me. I'd rather live my own way. This, it makes no sense to come and celebrate the price of admission. You don't even want in. And the scriptures make that clear as well. If you believe these things, come and eat as a friend of Christ. Join in his table. If not, it says, don't eat condemnation on yourself. 
And so we'd ask that you recognize that with us this morning. I'm going to give you an opportunity just for a moment to quietly pray, consider these things, prepare your heart for the Lord's Supper. I'll gather us back together with a prayer of blessing before we distribute the bread and the wine and the juice. Father in heaven, on the cusp of traveling with several of my brothers and sisters to Japan, it, uh, it's on my heart that no matter where we go, no matter what language we speak, no matter what we look like, what our past is, what our future is, when we are in Christ, we belong and we are unified together. And so this morning, with all the other followers of Christ in the world, no matter what time zone they are in, no matter what place they are in, no, whether, no matter whether they met publicly and openly or in secret, we are eating this bread and this, drinking this cup with Christ, which means we are doing that together. I pray, Lord, that this time as short as it is, as we come forward and take the bread and the juice and the wine and we eat it, that it would be a moment of respite, of rest, of pasture with our Lord and Savior, sitting without burden, without obligation at the foot of the cross where our admission was paid. I pray that we would feel free and know that we are free from our sins, the debt of our sins, that we would know and feel the infinite inheritance that was ours in Jesus Christ, guaranteed by the Spirit that is in us, promised by God, earned by Christ. May the assurance of that bring us peace. May this be a moment in our week where we may sit without trouble, without fear, inside the sheepfold knowing that we have been led in by our true shepherd. Give us that peace. Give us that encouragement. Remind us of what you have done. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.